0: you're listening to death of the reader flex and herds here for your murder mystery world tour and we are here in our second week discussing maria angelica bosco's death going down this wonderful argentine Elevator-related mystery, (laughs) a genre I never really thought we'd get into, Erds.
1: I mean, it does make me wonder just how many elevator-focused mysteries there are, and, you know, what the scene's like, you know, do they they have competitions Uh uh to see who can have the biggest elevator involved?
0: There must be, there must be. You know, there must be, yeah, yeah. We are discussing chapters four to six today, and it is a pretty, I feel like concise is the wrong word (laughs) to use. But there's not a lot that goes on here so much as that there's a lot of curiosity that Maria Angelica Bosco kind of brings up in terms of, brings up in the space of not actual, brings up in the space of not much action well, actually you, taking place. you say place. that, but there
1: is a murder, even though it is entirely off screen and mm. honestly a little bit baffling to me, but that's okay. We'll get into that later. Um, like there's, there's things that occur. There's some photographs that go missing. There's the murder of, of, of Serbo. Uh, who's the, the brother of a girl named Rita, who has a hard time talking to anybody because he's just an awful, awful man. Um, there is quite a fun scene actually with the Inara family where they're trying to question, uh, Beatriz, who was Senorita Inara, uh, the mother there. And the, the lights go out and they're like, oh, that silly machine's on the fritz again. And it's very clear that the father has, like, jiggered his machine to, to cause a power outage or something, which is pretty yeah, great. Yeah. Like, there's lots of little touches and moments to go, oh, isn't that, like, a fun thing? But you're right. There is no, you know, I better run and get the hound and snoop for clues although there is
0: a hound we do have muck still well, that's but true like, i was kind of sad how much yeah. of a backseat <laughs> muck takes in this place because it's a, a sad thing isn't it muck in one way sets the tone for this stretch of chapters where they're kind of lighthearted whilst dealing with relatively serious subject matter. Yeah. Uh, Our detective, basically, Blassie goes around and is like, oh yeah, you know, I just wanted to kind of get this like photograph processed with one of the suspects of this investigation. There's not a lot of actual tension between the suspects and each other. Yeah,
1: yeah. Or at least from what we can see, right? The the truth may be a different matter, but like there's not a lot of tension between the suspects and the police or the police and the detective. Everyone's just kind of on more or less friendly uh, terms.
0: We were also talking a little bit last time about how Eric and Blasey are two detective characters, kind of indistinguishable as who is the Sherlock and Watson of the pair. Yeah,
1: I don't know that I'm big on that, though. I kind of miss having very clear, you know, defining traits between the the
0: Sherlock and Watson, I suppose. Yeah, the interesting thing here, though, is that Blasey very much, like, fills the Watson role. Sure. But he's also the one doing all of the investigation in this stretch. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Eric Hort basically is presented information and does a few interrogations with characters, but all of the actual running around on the scene is done by Blasi, which feels like a slightly less broad depiction of the same relationship that, say, Nero Wolfe's Archie What's- Goodwin had. Why would you bring them up? They- Nero Wolf was never nearly assassinated while reading a
1: newspaper. And that'd be ridiculous. <laughs> um, yeah. It seems like we always come back to those two. They may just be the greatest. It's they're, they're great. They're great. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I mean, that's a good example of a pair of, of uh, you know, detectives and sidekicks who have such a, such a wide gap between the two of them that they stick out uh, really, really well, you know, since the detectives, are uh, more or less similar we do get a bit more time to kind of uh invested invest in the rest of the cast i think betty in particular who is kind of one of the more suspicious characters by the end of chapter six even though she she s- seems to be falling into the like you know i'm the the young girl who's in way over her head and probably isn't guilty of anything but she ends up just like doing all these suspicious things and clearly like has You know, probably romantic secrets or Mm. that sort of thing, which I think is quite interesting.
0: Well, yeah. And the other thing that we haven't really done so far is like recapped what's happened. And that's because, as you kind of touch on there, most of what happens here is just the interrogation stretch we just kind of go from character to character except instead of bringing them all into a room one after the other and talking to them about what happened we're visiting them day after day you know asking them about photographs going out to a cafe with them digging through trash there's a really interesting scene where we go back to the eidinger's house and we discover is it like gabby is there like hiding up in the roof because Eidinger didn't want her to be found at his house because he thought it would look too suspicious to the police. Mm-hmm, that's the one. She's just hiding there. It's totally fine. Yeah. Am I
1: mixing up uh, Gabby and Betty or are they the same character?
0: Uh, it's Betty at Eidinger's house. So I, I should correct myself. That's, there.
1: that's what I thought. Okay. I'm glad yeah, yeah. that we double checked that
0: because I was worried
1: that I had ruined all of my theories. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. But- our allocation of character time in this stretch is also really bizarre That's to great. me. I don't know if you kind of felt the same about this. For mm-hmm. example, uh, Dr. Lukta, when he shows up while Blasi is having drinks in a cafe with one of the other suspects, says, oh, I recognized you from behind uh-huh. as I entered. And it's like, oh, you- did you now, Lukta? He seems you wanna, so suspicious. You want to flesh that out for me a little bit? He's too suspicious. He, he is like, he
1: clearly knows a lot, but like he's- He's just, he's just like, a, he's a kind doctor, man, hopefully. Except for that time yeah. when he offers a cigarette, as as you mentioned, you know, before we got in the booth here, <laughs> where he offers a cigarette after a poisoning has just taken place to one of the cops. Two poisonings. Two poisonings. <laughs> Two poisonings. And he's like, why don't you just have a cigarette that I'm going to offer you for my personal stash? And, the, and the, the policeman is like, I'll just, I'll just, sure. I don't see anything wrong with this. This seems the fine. The other
0: one, the other one with Soler and Lukta that, that I really loved is in chapter six when Soler is like, sitting in a room and for some reason Maria Angelica Bosco just puts this in his head yes and says oh. like when one does not know what to think one speaks so that good. is common sense i mean that's such for a one a makes love or line. failing that one drinks anything to stop oneself sinking into the bottomless and torturous I, pit of I thought. I need to
1: tell you, that's like <laughs> my, my favourite little like mon- mini monologue of this entire story. It puts you so well in his mindset. so out of place no, in a way that I beautiful. genuinely loved. It's so good. It just shows how like he's on a completely different wavelength. Yeah. From everyone there just being like, I need to look out for number one and I need to make sure that there's all, like I, I don't have time to think. <laughs> Like, if I think about things too hard, I'll start to get guilty of my own actions. Like, there's a lot implied uh, through the way that he perceives himself and, like, the way that he has to fill the void of self-reflection with something to distract himself. Well, yeah, that was the uh, that was the thing great. that
0: I wanted to kind of drag us back to. Is at the beginning, I said it kind of felt like Muck set the tone for this chapter, mm-hmm. even though he's not actually present in most of the scenes yeah. that we go through. And that's because this feels so much like we as an audience are the, like, Watson puppy dog following Darcy sure. around. We are the muck. It's, yeah. it's such <laughs> a strange feeling. And I don't know if Maria Angelica Bosco intended muck as the, like, tone setter for that for me. But for some reason, it just kind of clicked with me and I, I really enjoyed it. It's one of those
1: things where um, in in stories, right, when you're constructing as an author or a designer or whatever, you're constructing, like, the cast of characters, They'll they'll come up with like the lowest bar of of like maturity or of of innocence or whatever that could, could accept this kind of story, right? Mm. And I feel the same about muck. I feel that muck is here to say like There is murder in this story, but like, we're not going to be ripping people open or like seeing gristing holes in people's heads or anything like that. And I imagine the resolution isn't going to be like a big chase scene and lots of fighting because Muck's there. Muck needs to be able to keep up with the action. He's plotting along. He needs to be able to keep up with what everybody else is doing. So well, that's why in <laughs>
0: Knox's rule, yeah. number nine, that stupid friend of the detective, the Watson must not conceal any thoughts which pass through his head and his mm-hmm. intelligence mm-hmm. must be slightly but very slightly below that of the yep. average reader. Because he's the bar. And some could argue that you could apply the same
1: description to a dog. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's he's the bar. The Watson is the bar. Although in this case, of the story, Muck is the bar for like, if you are as intelligent as this poor little doggy. You can you can handle whatever this story throws at you, which I think is really beautiful. And we like
0: never see explicitly through Mok's eyes, but it just it just feels like it a little bit, you know. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, I suppose uh, we should probably push over to the mystery section towards the end of this show, Herds. Yeah, dude, we should. I'm very excited to hear your solution for this because <laughs> the ending to this book has taken me more read throughs than anything that we've covered this entire year to quite fully grasp it so I hope you're on the ball I need to let
1: you know I'm I have some things that I'm like well this is obvious but I'm gonna be making so many stabs in the dark and hopefully you can pull the answers from deep within my my brain hole because I sure as heck Can't sort them out myself. This is this is a challenge. Is what this is.
0: This this is a lot for me. All righty, you're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Death Going Down by Maria Angelica Bosco. We'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you, and I'm about to play for you an interview that happened quite some months ago. Fresh off the heels of reading a stretch of Japanese and metafictional murder mystery novels, the news was put out that a translation of Seishi Yokomizo's Village of Eight Graves, translated by Brian Karatnik, would be coming out in early December this year. And I sat down with those thoughts fresh on my mind to talk with Brian about translation. And I figured now that we are getting into translation again, with Maria Angelica Bosco, it'd be the perfect time to bring it to you. The book comes out on the 2nd of December. We'll have links up on the podcast if you're interested in getting yourself a copy. I'm very excited to get my hands on it after enjoying the Honjin murder case so much when it was put out. So here is that discussion with translator Brian Karatnik. Brian, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you. It's great to be here.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Let's start with the icebreaker question. I know you've done several classic translations, both Russian and Japanese, for Pushkin in the past. How did you end up with the task of translating The Village of Eight Graves?
2: Um, It's an interesting one, really. So I've long I've tried uh, as you say I've done a lot of classic Russian translation um I started doing the classic Japanese translation last year um but a great love of mine throughout life generally has been crime fiction murder mystery that sort of stuff um and I've been in touch with um my amazing editor at Bushkin Vertigo and um, Dan who commissioned a lot of the other Sesioka music works and we've been talking about my love of it and he'd could he'd acquired the rights for this book. And he very kindly asked me if I'd want to translate it. So of course I jumped to the opportunity when he, when he. Yeah. That's really
0: fantastic. I mean, we love talking about that process here on death of the reader. And it's been so interesting getting to hear uh, from people like we heard from on recently on the show, thanks to she done it. Uh, and his experience with his grandfather Seishi Okamizo, and also what uh, Daniel Seaton had to go through to get all of these books, and why it's such an exciting new field. So, did you choose to read through this book the whole way in Japanese before starting translating at all? Or did you put pen to page right from the start? What's the actual process there for
2: you? Um, well, it's interesting. So, with this one, I'd actually read the book in Japanese years and years ago. So, um, when Daniel and I were talking about um, Yokomizo, it was it, it was kind of nostalgic actually, sort of reading yeah, these yeah. books. <laughs> It's fantastic seeing them come into English. So yeah, I when we agreed to do it, I reread the book, loved it as much as I did the first time around. But yeah, I think it's it's so important, particularly with crime fiction, detective fiction, that you know. Exactly what's happening because you kind of got to know where the author's sort of leading you, where he's misleading you, all that sort of stuff. I
0: suppose there's there's a level to it in translation where you'd probably notice a lot more of those little misleading and leading details than you would the first time through the book. Was it a whole new experience reading it specifically for the context of translation?
2: I think absolutely. I mean, crime fiction it, it trains you to be a very specific kind of reader. You is a very active reader. You're, you're constantly on the lookout for all these details, but then. When you're doing it as a translation, you're that much more immersed in every single line. You're sort of questioning every inflection, every turn of phrase, every sort of detail that's being given to you. um, Thinking, oh, is this a red herring? Is this a clue? What's happening here? What's the meaning of this? Not just what's being said, but you're also very conscious of what isn't being said.
0: So what are some of the challenges in carrying across meaning, particularly from Japanese to English, that you think most English readers wouldn't really expect when they were first getting into that sort of thing?
2: Um, I mean, it's an interesting question. There are a lot of things um, in translating from Japanese, particularly that um, are more challenging um, in this respect um, than, say, translating from Russian or from French or German. One of the first ones, the most obvious ones, is um, the Japanese encodes... Uh, personal relationships or degrees of formality or informality or intimacy, much more overtly into the into the very grammar of the sentence, really. So when you're translating that into English, you've got to make choices um, uh, to represent that really in different ways. So, for example, in terms of tone, in terms of phrasing, it's much more sort of fluid in that way, rather than um, a very sort of starkly grammatical way of doing it. Other things, um, one thing that I was particularly conscious of while translating this is how Japanese likes to drop subjects and how it's much more of a gender neutral language. In that, uh, it's very easy to sort of get away with not saying whether uh, whether you're talking about a man or a woman, whether you're talking about one person or several people, is very good at hiding that.
0: Yeah, I can I can think of many Japanese mystery novels I've read that have played with the quantity and gender of their characters as a key part of the mystery.
2: Absolutely. Um, but it's it interesting because when you're doing um particularly when you're doing like Honkaku yep. um Japanese literature, you want to still maintain that element of fair play. You don't want to be deliberately misleading the reader in a way that would be inappropriate for the genre. So you've got to come up with creative ways sometimes of doing that in English (laughs) in order to get around. But it's always a a huge, huge um, bit of fun trying to do that. So.
0: Well, I mean, talking about that game of trying to see how you can still play with the readers, do you try and avoid injecting your own voice into translated text? Or is that an inevitability that it's better to learn how to accept what are kind of the habits in your own translation that you've had to beat out of yourself or refine over the years in
2: that regard? Um, That's a really interesting question. I... I try as much as possible to sort of beat myself out of it. I see, I see translation a lot of the time as more being a sort of ventriloquist act. So I mean, I when I was a kid, I devoured all sorts of sort of golden age writing, like the Christie Dorothy says, all of that. So I've kind of got their voices in the back of my head while I'm doing a lot of this, I think. And you sort of you know the conventions, you know the sort of overall tone that you're going for. So it's trying to it's trying to create something that will evoke. A similar response in an anglophone reader, I think. I think that's what I'm always trying to do first and foremost. It's got to read like a convincing work of literature, and it's got to be enjoyable in the first respect. So, it's interesting when you get this question of fidelity, because I think you can you can so often be so attached to the words on the page, you kind of forget what it's what the words are supposed to be doing, and that's creating an impression on the reader. So, it's always I'm always trying to sort of create the impression. Um, first and foremost rather than looking at the words uh, specifically, if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose the other question that comes to mind then is that it's been over 70 years since this book was first published and a large part of the Honkaku School of Japanese Mystery Fiction is the cultural emotions at the time in Japan. So is it the language barrier or the time barrier kind of bigger for you as a translator there? Are there some details to that social context that make it difficult to do the translation?
2: I mean, in some ways it's the time that's more difficult or it can be with other authors. But I mean, one one great thing about um, The Village of Eight Graves is, or just with Yokomizo in general, it's the, the time and the place is so integral to the work itself. I mean, this work it certainly mid it post-war years and the war really looms heavily over absolutely everything that happens it determines a lot of the characters' destinies and their fates so you've got to be alive to that but whereas with some other authors it might be a bit the context might be assumed with Yokamisa he really integrates it into the storytelling um which makes it which makes it so much easier for me to translate it because you don't have to do all that explaining yourself you don't have to make any interpolations because he already sort of works it in a really naturalistic way which has been uh just a joy to sort of translate in that respect
0: i think the last thing i wanted to touch on before we kind of wrap up today brian is i've not actually read the village of eight graves because my japanese is uh as the natives would say (laughs) jozu From what I've heard, The Village of Eight Graves has been incredibly influential in the local Japanese scene with so many different series, both inside and out of crime fiction, you know, drawing from its setting, its characters, its puzzle. Is there anything that after taking a more in-depth look into The Village of Eight Graves, you've retroactively realized was inspired by it? Is that influence as big as I've actually heard?
2: I think so. I mean, it's certainly one of Yokomizo's most enduringly popular works, particularly within the Kindaichi series. I think there are a lot of reasons that that could be. I mean, it's got so many different elements to it. Like I was talking about earlier, there's a historical element to it, but there's also a sort of gothic element. There's also the classic element to it. And some of the writing in it, I think, is just so cinematic. There's sort of scenery up in the mountains. There's also sort of, um, passages, uh, sort of secret passages in a series of caves. And it's made it this sort of uh, cultural touchstone, almost. So it, it, definitely, it definitely strikes a chord with with Japanese readers looking online the other day, sort of at um, just reading up, just reading up on exactly this, about how, how important it is for contemporary Japanese readers. And you sort of see people dressing up as some of the characters for it, for Halloween and all these various other things. So, I mean, it's become a cultural phenomenon.
0: It is. It is so exciting to finally be getting more of Kosuke Kendaichi here in English, because uh, after going through the Hunchen murder case, for all of the for all of the odd little quirks that made me frustrated with that book, it has a warm place in my heart, and I'm so glad to have uh, some wonderful translators like yourself working on that project with Pushkin. So Brian, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It's been absolutely absolute delight, thank you. Brian's translation of The Village of Eight Graves joins Pushkin Vertigo's lineup alongside Death Going Down early this December. We'll have links up on the podcast if you want to get yourself a copy we are discussing maria angelica bosco's death going down we'll be back with more of that in just a second you're listening to death of the reader flex and herds here for your murder mystery world tour we are discussing chapters four to six in our penultimate episode on maria angelica bosco's death going down our second last book for the year I'm terrified to find out what Herds has oh. picked for me last, <laughs> at the end of next week. But before we get there, Herds, I hope you are just as terrified to present your solution this week. I definitely am. There's going
1: to be a lot of rambling today, I think. It's just been so hard to get my thoughts straight on this. <laughs> let me let me start with the, the, the most obvious point. Okay, let me start with the logical beginning, Soler. Okay, I want to talk about him. I'm going to argue that the state of mind that Solaire presents to us is meant to give us a glimpse into the mind of our killer today, because he does say that the way for himself to not seem guilty because he's so self-conscious is to spare no detail because obviously people who have nothing to hide would spare no detail. At least he thinks that's how it is cleverly hidden through the use of uh, narration rather than actual character lines, which is a telltale sign of mm-hmm. of shenaniganry, uh, there is a character in this story who has spared no detail and has been incredibly eager to speak the name of the victim as many times as humanly possible in order to deflect blame. Uh, We are going with the oldest trope in the book, my friend. We are going with the husband did it. Oh, no. uh, On this edition of Death of the Reader. (laughs) What if the killer wasn't even in the hotel to begin with? What if they had the perfect alibi, not once, but twice for the various crimes that they're uh, attempting to commit? Can I tell you the the moment where I I figured that he was probably the killer?
0: Let's just be clear. This is Mr. Eidinger.
1: Yeah. This is why I was worried when you said, Gabby. Uh, when Betty is uh, presumably tearing up photographs and flushing them down the toilet, screaming, I assume, to hide the sound of the toilet flushing. I hope. That's my theory. Yep, yep. And he's talking to her and every, like the te- detectives are both there. And he says, you know, I arranged for us all to like be here at the same time. Isn't that crazy? Very convenient. Yeah. Um, and she keeps looking to him to tell her what to say. And he's like, yeah, tell her, tell them everything. And she's like, oh, I don't know if I should say this. And she looks at him again. He's like, yeah, tell them everything. Um, it's very clear to me that Eidinger is manipulating Betty. That seems like the the linchpin of this
0: whole can I can, I can see that a little bit. I can definitely see, you know, because obviously- Uh, Several of the like paternal figures in the apartment block Mm. uh, in which the elevator is uh, portrayed very, I guess, old fashionedly patriarchal.
1: They're all trying to like protect Betty. That's that's my theory, basically, except for our murderer. Our murderer is a no good human being. and, And Serbo deserved to get murdered because he's like in on the scheme, whatever the scheme is. We'll get to that. But, well, I hope we will. <laughs> but Lupta, Luch- the doctor, uh, and Senor Inara, who flicks his machine off, and possibly—I don't know about Soleil. I feel like he's not in on this, but definitely those two. Mm-hmm. Um, those two very patriarchal figures. Are being overprotective.
0: Yeah, slight what I should
1: make. I have seen the name of the next chapter. It is let me let me. It's a new character. We haven't met him yet. Well, this is mm, this is this is the thing that concerns me. Who is? Well, it says where is not where is where is Amelia. Well, we it's love funny you. that you said who is. Title of this chapter has come in. You know, immediately after picking up some notebook that's been tossed out. I I feel like I need to f- f- uh, finger who this character is. I'm going to say. In terms of the why, this is the biggest jab in the dark that I have. I'm going to say that Senor Enara is Emilio Velalba. I think that what's what's happening here in terms of the actual plot, he's probably uh, Eidinger is probably extorting Betty for money, possibly money that's supposed to be going to to medicine for for Senor Enara, Agustin, and that his plan, since Frida was like, I'm gonna go over and. And expose your plan and like, get Betty out of this. He was like, well, she has to go. And that's what's kicked off this whole situation. Interesting. That's where my brain's at. Please poke I'm
0: still it. a little unclear on a few things here. I mean, <laughs> first of all, you know, we've, we've shaped up the general structure of the motivation of this crime, but yes. I'm still a little confused as to the absence of many set pieces that we get oh, through no. this novel. Oh, no. For example, we make a very clear ordeal of uh, Blasi and court you know, speaking German to various characters who feel more comfortable speaking in German, mm-hmm. even though they supposedly have Argentinian heritage. Sure. Uh, we have that entire opening scene with Lukter and Soler, which I completely agree uh, is meant to make them look suspicious as all hell. Mm. But at the same time, there's a lot of detail there, like the lipstick rolling away, which is like, you know, classic murder mystery clue number one. Oh no, piece of evidence goes missing. Mm. Like what do you what do you put those down to? Why are they here? Are you saying that they're just willy-nilly red herrings? No well, us I, I would say that
1: those characters who are more comfortable speaking German, I forget who they are. But those characters were people that Inara has has brought over from Germany. And so all those characters probably in on that, like, let's get people out of Germany because because World Wars. Um, And that's the information that that Mr. Eidinger is is holding over. Gustavo is holding over Betty and the other characters.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, the but at the same thing, time, if Gustavu's kind of, like, holding it over them when he has a German wife who's an immigrant herself, sure. what's the, like, what's he actually holding over there? Uh, like, oh, goodness, you're an immigrant, just like my wife. How horrible.
1: Yes, well, I mean, I, I would assume that the thing that is being held over is not that these characters are German. It's that Inara, like, did some bad stuff in order to get them over from Germany, that he's, like, uh-huh. in charge of that. but
0: Smuggled them in through the
1: rum tunnels? Well, maybe. That's... that's Look, I I may not 100 have an answer for all of this. I apologize. <laughs> this is this this story is is tricking me all over the place. There's something that Inara is responsible for. I'm just not sure what 100 what it is. Um, it might be connected to those photos, but I'm not I'm not sure. Well, yeah, I'm not I sure guess on that, that point. would be the
0: next clue that I want to poke you on is that the photos and the engraving appearing in the background of one of them has come up many 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 times through the story, but I. I don't know if I've heard any real explanation as to why that's of any concern, you know? Sure, it could be a symbol of them being smuggled into the country if we're going to try and, like, line it up with uh, with what you have here. But, like, you know, if the police are going to see it and it's compromising information, why is he willing to, like, track it down to show it to the police? <sighs> I mean, probably to deflect him. Isn't that,
1: isn't that Eidinger? Isn't that Gustavo who's, like, showing this symbol to people? Maybe that's... Maybe that's the big secret. This symbol is like something that binds all these German characters together. They're part of some like, I don't know, nudist cult, let's say. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know is the problem. They're they're probably part of some group, uh, if I had to guess, that is... That, like, used to be bad news. I don't know. Um, I- Okay, Now they're he trying to leave it behind. This is
0: where I have the biggest issue with your theory here, is that, like- right? We keep pushing on this, like, collective idea of this group of people doing things, and- First of all, you know, S.S. Van Dyne doesn't like groups of conspiracy sure, theorists sure. and co-conspirators because criminal organizations kind of downplay the mystery. But whatever, that's S.S. Van Dyne. We, we poo on him enough. Sure. The problem I more have is I feel like if we were going to be presented with that, we would have had a bit more tangible evidence to well, there. That's, that's why I'm not sure. Branding.
1: I, I, I'm not- I, I need to be clear. Like, I'm not saying that, like, this group was responsible for everything. I'm saying that, like, Inara, like, helped these people- um, and that he is the one who is like the the person with the secret that needs to not come out. Uh, and I assume that Amelia was involved in that. I'm not sure what the secret is is the problem.
0: Yeah, you know, you're kind of leaning on the whole idea that it's like some kind of double crime for political revenge of some sort. I am not as
1: strong with the the political murder mystery angle. As I would like, so I I may just have to let this one go, unfortunately, if what I've said so far is not enough to earn me a point.
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, Herds, I'm just saying that the obvious solution you should have gone with is that Soler and Lukta were in on it together and the entire opening scene was an unreliable narrator as they actually just did the crime and shucked the lipstick down the elevator. But I guess, uh, I guess you'll just have to wait and find out next week.
1: I guess we'll see. If it is that simple, then that'll be very unfortunate. <laughs> but we'll guess we'll find out.
0: Anyway, I suppose, herds, we will uh, we will depart uh, from this week's edition of Death of the Reader in preparation for the final chapters of Death Going Down by Maria Angelica Bosco next week on the show and the unveiling of our grand finale novel for 2021. Mm. Thank you very much for joining me, herds, and thank you for joining us. I want to see what I have cooked up for us next time on. Death of the Reader. It's your murder mystery world tour here on 2SEI 107.3. We'll
2: see you next.